From CPRI and the CPRI Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today, we look at remote instruction during the COVID-19 pandemic and a new study examining the expectations and responses of nearly 500 school systems across the U.S. In general, we found that only about a third of the districts across the country seem to be expecting their teachers to continue to instruct their students. We welcome Bethany Gross, report co-author and associate director of the Center on Reinventing Public Education. Gross discusses her team's findings. About one in five districts set the expectation that there be live engagement between teachers and students during this time and some important implications for districts now planning for the fall and beyond. I think the goal cannot be at this point to restore the system that we had before. That's right now on Research Minutes. Hello and welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Keith U. Miller, Managing Editor of the CPRI Knowledge Hub. And today we're thrilled to welcome Bethany Gross, uh, Associate Director of the Center on Reinventing Public Education, or CRPE. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Bethany. Thank you. Uh, so today we're discussing CRPE's new report, which you co-authored with Alice Opalka, titled Too Many Schools Leave Learning to Chance During the Pandemic. Uh, it contains find <clears throat> it contains findings from your study of a nationally representative sample of nearly 500 school systems across the U.S., uh, focusing on how they've responded to school closures during the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, you don't really have to read much further than the title to get a sense of what you found. But uh, to start, could you tell us a little bit about your analysis? What questions did you have going in and how did you try to answer them? So we built this study off of um, some work that's uh, SERPE, that's how we call CRPE, <laughs> uh, that SERPE started up, um, at the very beginning of the closures in early mid-March. We're here in Seattle, so s- schools and businesses started closing down fairly early for us, and we started to really recognize that this was going to be a wave that passed over the country and was going to have really um, significant and dramatic implications for our students. So we we started watching what was happening right away. So we built this database of about 82 school districts and mostly large and urban districts to just try to track what it is they were doing to respond to the closures. Um, What were the frameworks they were using for instruction, providing services, communication, um, and uh, communication with families around the closures. But since this was a, a largely large district data set, we were really starting to wonder what um, what these responses looked like across the country. So that prompted us to reach out to our partners uh, with the American School District Panel Project at RAND to draw a nationally representative sample of school districts. And in April, we sent out uh, a team of researchers to scan district websites, their Facebook pages, their Twitter accounts, to sort of piece together what the responses were in all of these districts in general, we looked at a couple of different uh, response uh, factors, um, including sort of what was their instruction, how they were tracking student engagement, how they were monitoring students' progress, and how they were providing technology access to students at home. 
So let's jump right into what you found. Um, we'll discuss how districts and schools actually responded to the pandemic in a moment. But as we all know, so much of what happens in schools begins with what districts expect of them. Um, did you learn anything about district expectations for schools in the wake of school closures? Well, I, I mean, we, we learned largely what was in the title, as you noted. Um, in general, we found that only about a third of the districts across the country seem to be expecting their t- teachers to continue uh, to instruct their students. And um, and on, on that point, you know, what we're talking about really is, did the district set the expectations that teachers should continue to kind of help their students access or understand the, the instructional content they were sending out? either through live interaction, ubiquitous Zoom calls that we see, or uh, through what what is often referred to as asynchronous engagement, where they might post videos explaining information or have sort of rich feedback exchanges around students' work, even if they weren't doing it in real time. You know, I think that you know, what we see here is districts who are trying to balance a lot of competing con- concerns in in a time and in a in an experience that is pretty unprecedented, we understand that, um, and we know this from talking to different districts throughout this uh, these last couple of months, that there was a real desire to kind of give teachers and schools some flexibility to figure out how to do things, um, and some very real concerns about uh, students' access to the internet and to devices. That said, the notion that you know that many teachers were not expected. Um, and districts did not expect their teachers to really continue to engage their students around their instruction and work with their students in providing them access to their to the content that they were sending out meant that there were a lot of packets that were being sent out to parents and parents and students were essentially on their own to understand this content. And, you know, in, in a sense, kind of, as we say in the title, kind of left their learning to chance. You know, one one thing that we know from other surveys are uh, our colleagues at RAND, who run also the American Educator Panel, found that, you know, a consequence of, you know, the the drive to just get whatever information and whatever activities out to students meant that a lot of students were just going through a kind of extended, you know, spring review period where they weren't really getting much in the way of new content. In fact, the American Educator Panel has found that about half of teachers were saying that they were introducing only a small amount of new content, if any at all. That brings me to one of your other findings um, regarding engagement. Um, Some of the studies that we've been seeing in recent weeks regarding, you know, the impacts or the the approaches that districts have taken to remote instruction, um, some of these analyses have found that significant numbers of students are simply not logging in or engaging with teachers in a meaningful way. Um, And as this is one of the first nationally representative analyses we've seen, I'm curious if your team found the same. Yeah. So just so I'm, I'm clear, like we weren't able to find out how much engagement was happening in these districts. What we found and what we looked for were uh, the district's expectations for whether teachers should be taking attendance. And, you know, we all understand that attendance is essentially a proxy for students' engagement and learning. So having an expectation that, a t- that teachers be aware of how many students are engaging is actually pretty important. Um, and we also know that a lot of districts 
used sort of these the attendance recording um, that you you talked about to uh, to figure out who they really needed to target resources for, you know, in, in Broward County, we learned that they were using their attendance to se to send out district employees basically to the front door of students who weren't engaging. So if you don't collect that data at all, you don't know that, you know, you don't know where to deploy those resources. That said, uh, I will say daily attendance was also something that doesn't make a, a lot of sense in some of the instructional circumstances that we that we observed out there. Um, so there are rural districts, for instance, where they knew that a large percentage of their students or enough of a percent of their students were not able to get internet access at home. So they were they had sort of worked out these different strategies of uploading videos onto flash drives and having drop, you know, drop off spots where students would come pick those things up, drop off last week's work. So, so what we also tried to pay attention to were districts that were at least setting expectations that they, uh, that their student or their teachers check in with their students on some routine basis. So we looked for both expectations around attendance taking, uh, and we would see that reference in some, in some district material, but also requirements around um, and, and standards around uh, how frequently teachers should be checking in with students and families. And when we looked across, you know, the percent of uh, districts that were asking for one or the other of those, we found that about 48 percent um, were expecting their, their teachers to either take attendance or, or conduct these kinds of check-ins. So we know that about half the time <laughs> there was some explicit requirements around that being established by the districts. We know that there were teachers that were doing um, doing things beyond what baseline expectations were in a lot of cases. So we don't have a clear sense of how much attendance taking was being done or how much attendance and engagement individual teachers found from these data. Now, there's one finding in, in this report that really kind of shocked me a little bit. You found that students in nearly 40% of the districts that you studied had no firm expectation to complete assignments. <laughs> I just want to make sure I read that correctly. Two out of five districts essentially did not require teachers to monitor students' academic progress? Yeah, that's right. That's what we found. Um, you know, again, we're, I, I feel like I am. I always have to caveat this a little bit that we are talking about the baseline expectations that districts were setting. But yeah, we, we found this uh, worrisome too, that, you know, because if, if they're not monitoring progress or, you know, asking students to turn in work, I think teachers are going to be flying pretty blind <laughs> next fall when students uh, come back and in whatever format they come back to and, and start to re-engage with, um, with their teachers and with learning. So this, we were equally concerned. I will say, you know, again, I think that part of the drive around this was um, giving teachers flexibility to figure out what, uh, what strategies and schemes will work for them and with their students. And so we do know that a lot of teachers probably went above these expectations. In fact, you know, jumping back to that American Educator panel from RAND, when they surveyed their teachers, they found that about 80% of the teachers reported that they did require students to complete some assignments, at least, though two-thirds of them didn't really issue grades around that. And, you know, and about 17% didn't 
really offer any feedback on that. So this was just like teacher saying, you're required to send it in, but <laughs> I'm not really going to do anything with it. So that's, I think that that puts a little less um, urgency on students and parents for, for actually completing and submitting the work. I just think it really reinforces this notion that the districts were kind of leaving learning up to chance. You know, if you had a teacher who was interested and, and, and felt like they were interested, they were able to sort of push on students and get them to engage and to get them to turn in work, then your instruction probably stayed on track. But if you didn't have a teacher who didn't feel um, supported to do that kind of work, probably didn't spend a lot of time learning new things in the spring. And we've had quite a few conversations with experts in so many different fields since this pandemic began. Um, and pretty much all of them at some point or another expressed concern about student equity. Um, and your work here is really no different. Um, and you report on some really significant gaps between urban and rural districts and between affluent and high poverty districts. Um, so let's start with, with rural districts. Obviously they faced a unique set of challenges at a time when internet speeds and remote connectivity are suddenly these vital instructional resources. But um, how did those districts respond in comparison to, say, suburban or urban districts? Yeah, our data seems to suggest that um, they were really a lot, le- a lot less likely to set the expectations for continued instruction, as I kind of described it earlier. We saw, you know, closer to 27% of rural districts, which honestly, you know, when you look at, at the district level makeup a pretty large percentage of our our school districts across the country. So it was closer to 27% of the rural districts were requiring instruction for all teachers. Of course, in our scans across the country, we found some pretty mighty examples of efforts (laughs) to break with this trend. You know, I talked about, you know, districts that went to great lengths to have their teachers upload videos onto thumb drives and, and distribute those. We saw efforts to really build up community-based hotspots in different and kind of fun ways, like putting Wi-Fi on school buses and parking them around the communities, uh, you know, as a way to kind of help their kids get access to the internet for learning. We saw districts really lean into the, their communication and their relationships with, um, with students and families um, and committing to a lot of check-ins with families, checking in on wellness, checking in with students, um, really spending a lot of time devoted to doing one-on-one communication in whatever way they could. But in the end, you know, I think on balance, the concerns about connectivity in rural areas really kind of weighed heavily on the responses that that rural communities um, and rural districts felt like they could make. So, you know, I said about 27% of rurals required instruction from all teachers, whereas in in the cities, it was closer to 50, um, a little over 50%. You know, 43% of the rural districts reported that they were tracking student engagement via attendance or check-ins, whereas the the number in the city, um, in the city districts was closer to 66%. And, you know, in progress monitoring, we kind of saw the same, uh, you know, split between the rural and urbans as well. You also uh, investigated differences between affluent and high poverty districts. And and one of the findings from this report that's gotten a lot of attention since it came out um, was that affluent districts were twice as likely as high poverty districts to require live instruction. 
Um, could you walk us through that finding and what you learned? Yeah, you know, and I, I want to start by saying that overall, the expectations around live instructions were low. Uh, only about one in five districts set the expectation that there be live engagement between teachers and students during this time. So on balance, a low number. But when we looked at the the quartile of districts that have the lowest concentration of students who are eligible for free and reduced lunch versus districts with the highest concentration, we, we found that the more affluent and the lower concentration districts, about 30% of them were reporting that uh, they had an expectation for live instruction, but closer to 15% was the number we found with the highest concentration of free and reduced lunch. So as you, you said, you know, the affluent districts were twice as likely to require that. And I think what we're seeing here is like this recurring theme around access to technology and how it was shaping the expectations that the districts had in districts with a high concentration of students eligible for free and reduced lunch. There were really significant concerns about students' access to the internet and devices. And this, you know, this weighed heavily on the nature of the response that districts were, yeah, that districts felt comfortable requiring. And I have to say like, this is, this intersects with this moment that we're having. I mean, like we are now really examining the many systematic and embedded ways in which students uh, living in poverty and students students of color are sort of denied access to opportunities and opportunities for learning. And I think here we see the opportunity for learning during this uh, during these closures curtailed because uh, because resources that are frankly ubiquitous in more affluent households are too excess too expensive or they're just unreliably provided to communities uh, living in poverty. And I think these closures are not revealing something new. This is not the first time we've seen this, but these closures are showing that, you know, students' access to learning isn't really, really significantly shaped by the resources that they have in their communities and at home and not necessarily their drive to learn. So before we go, um, I'm curious if your team came away from this work with any lessons learned or if you have some recommendations for districts who are now planning for what is sure to be one of the most uncertain school years of, of all time, few are really willing to predict right now what the upcoming school year is going to look like. But for many districts, it's almost certainly going to contain some form of remote learning. So what could districts, schools, or even instructors and families uh, do to help address these inequalities and improve learning going forward? Yeah, well, we have a we have a lot of ideas about that. <laughs> I'll I'll share a few of them. Um, first, you know, I kind of want to acknowledge that these circumstances that we're in and the uh, the expectations for districts and the problems that you know we've we've set on districts' plates are too big for any one school or district. I think I've talked a few times about the challenge that inconsistent access to the internet presented to districts and, and their need to sort of manage and think about instruction around, around those limitations. I think the state and federal government really do need to step up um, and help close this digital divide that's out there. 
And, you know, this is, it's too big for districts to just do on their own um, and with the resources that they have. I think a state and federal government also need to kind of help districts coordinate on some of the, the logistic issues that are out there. You know, how is social distancing going to happen? How are, is personal protective equipment going to be provided? What is needed? How to safely transport kids from home to school if they're going to be in buildings next fall? You know, how to prioritize kids, students with disabilities, and really help figure out some of these logistical issues and support the districts to pursue and, and, and do whatever it takes to have uh, students and teachers safe in the fall. The states and the federal government really need to step up and help with this um, so that districts can get back to focusing on instruction and really thinking about, okay, given all of these constraints, how are we going to do instruction? How are we going to um, help our kids get through the learning that that, that we need them to get through? Um, the second thing I, that we think about, and our center director, Robin Lake, says this a lot, she kind of likens it to the, the epidemiological challenge we have is that we need to flatten the curve on the learning losses. So we know that a lot of students are going to be coming back to learning in the fall, not having been exposed to the curriculum that they normally would have. Um, and we have a, a hunch if estimates around learning loss um, that were done by researchers at uh, NWEA come to fruition, we're going to see pretty wide disparities in what uh, students have sort of learned through the spring and what they've, what competencies they've been able to obtain. Um, so we're going to have sort of a bigger distribution of competencies with students starting in the fall. So schools and districts really need to act pretty fast and pretty strategically to address this. The urgency of the crisis is not going to be lessened at all in the fall. Um, they're going to need to be really strategic with their time and their staff and their money. They're going to have to figure out um, how to assess the students' competencies near the beginning of the year, address their emotional needs, and quickly target resources to students, tutoring, um, extra time, extra resources. The other thing that they probably ought to be thinking about is how to lessen the demands on teachers to deliver instruction. I know there's kind of a longstanding tradition of teachers having control over everything in their classrooms, what they teach, how they teach. But I think one, one thing we observed this spring is that there were some districts who really found that, that doing things like mapping out common units, for instance, um, all fifth grade teachers in science might deliver this one unit that's been um, that's been developed by a team of teachers in the district. Provide, you know, so doing things like this actually lessens the burden on developing curriculum, finding the resources that can be used in remote settings or in hybrid settings or whatever we end up in, um, and instead allows the teachers to focus solely on delivery and engagement of students. So how they don't have to think about all of, you know, collecting all of this material and designing all this curriculum. And instead, they just have to think, how do I um, deliver this content to my students? How do I gauge them in this work? And I think that that seemed to lower um, the demands on teachers in, in, in useful ways for folks in the spring. You know, the Third thing, I think, I think everybody um, in this time is going to need to continue to hold a posture of learning. Um, some of the things that we try are going to work, some are not. Um, and that's just our reality. 
you know, teachers and schools and districts are going to have to keep thinking about uh, how do I assess whether this is working? Um, how do I reflect it and in a pretty rapid fashion on what I've tried, what's working, what's not? They're going to need to keep checking in with students, checking in with uh, parents, and being willing to adapt as quickly as they learn. And I would say, finally, um, we can't assume that this will be the last time <laughs> we we go through an ordeal like this. And so, you know, I think as we think about getting kids back into learning in the fall, as we think about the possibility of a vaccine coming online and sort of getting back to something that feels like a more normal rhythm, I think the goal cannot be at this point to restore the system that we had before. What we had before wasn't designed to serve all children well. We know this. And it was also, um, it also proved to be a little too fragile in this crisis. So as we think about coming back and, and slowly getting, getting our educational systems back into a, a, you know, a groove and, and, and a pattern forward, we really need to think about rebuilding a system that is designed for equity and one that provides much greater resilience than I think what we found ourselves with last spring. Well, this is just incredible work that your your team has done, and we want to encourage our listeners to go and read the full report. Again, it's titled Too Many Schools Leave Learning to Chance During the Pandemic, and it's now available at CRPE, uh, C-R-P-E.org. Bethany Gross, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. You can find all of our episodes and subscribe to the series by visiting us at researchminutes.org. To share thoughts on today's episode or to suggest a future topic, you can follow us on Twitter at CPRE Hub. That's C-P-R-E Hub.